Late Night City, Beyond the Dark. Well, let's speak to a gentleman by the name of Scott Crichton. When you see a book title like The Great Pyramid Hoax, you've got to speak to somebody like this who's written the book. Hello, Scott. Hi there, Peter. Right, before we talk about the book, let's find out a flavour of who you are so we know why you've written the book. Who are you? Okay, um, I'm... uh... My day job, basically, Peter, is I'm, I'm an IT engineer. That's, that's my background. And I have been an IT engineer for about 25 years. I worked in a number of global companies um, doing IT stuff. And that, that was good because it allowed me to basically go to all these different countries around the world and visit ancient sacred sites you know, at company expense, which was great. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that was fabulous. So that's... I mean, I've always been interested in um, ancient Egyptian history since I was a small boy. Uh, I mean, who couldn't be fascinated by these absolutely monumental structures? To me, like, as a kid, these things were like dinosaurs. That was, that was a similar kind of thing that draw to me. These things. These structures were massive. They were bigger than dinosaurs, you know. And as a small kid, that, that's just like a magnet for me. But, you know, as you get older, certainly as I got older, I realised that, well, you know, um, you're taught in school that these were the tombs of the pharaohs. And when you get older, you realise, well, actually, that's, that's actually just a hypothesis. That's just a theory. Um, albeit it's the, it's the mainstream theory of what, why these structures were built. Um, but... You know, when you investigate it a wee bit more as you're older, you realise, well, wait a minute, there are all these holes in the conventional narrative and the orthodox story about, you know, who, why and when these structures were built. And for me, that just wasn't good enough. The, the orthodox answers simply weren't good enough for me. So I had to go and investigate this for myself and find basically my own answers, answers that would um, basically satisfy me. Um, And so, you know, to try and figure out basically who we are, you know, where we come from, you know, where we're going, you know, so in in that journey, that personal quest, obviously the the oldest man-made structures in the world seemed like, for me, the most obvious and natural place to begin that quest. Scott, where did you start? I mean, did you talk about the idea of the book for a long time and then go one day, enough, I'm going to do it? How did it come about? Okay, well, the book itself came about, just to give you a bit of um, backstory here, Colonel Vice, Colonel Richard William Howard Vice, who discovered um, these um, painted marks inside the Great Pyramid, wrote a book himself in 1837 about his discovery in the Great Pyramid. And even at that time, there were some questions over the authenticity of what Colonel Vice presented to academia um, in the British Museum. You know, so there were always sort of vague question marks lingering over what Colonel Vice claims he discovered in the Great Pyramid. And he wrote a book about his discovery called um, Operations at Giza, 1837. And there's three volumes, um, you know, published volumes of this book. And it basically details um, his discoveries at the time. Now, my reason for investigating this was, A, because there were were some question marks over Vice's discovery, but also... You're probably familiar, Peter, with um, the international author Zechariah Sitchin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he wrote the um, Earth Chronicles. Uh, 
1980, he published a book called The Stairway to Heaven. And this is where, for the first time, we see someone you know, actually claiming that the marks discovered by Colonel Weiss were fake. Now, the problem with Zechariah Sitchin's analysis of um, Howard Weiss's discovery and um, some of the evidence that um, was presented by Sitchin, it was flawed. Sitchin had made some mistakes in understanding what it was Howard Weiss had actually discovered. So, basically, um, people who supported Sitchin um, back in the early 90s, um, people like Robert Boval, uh, Graham Hancock, you know, these, these guys, um, they basically um, distanced themselves from the, the forgery claim of Sitchin, of Zechariah Sitchin. But the thing for me that was curious was um, Sitchin, in a later book called The Journey to the Mythical Past, uh, that was published in 2007, he tells a story of a guy who actually was working with Vice, who, who actually saw this hoax, this forgery taking place inside the Great Pyramid, um, a guy called Humphreys Brewer. And this guy, Brewer, wrote letters back to his family, and those letters were passed on down the family until a guy, his, his uh, great-grandson, a, a chap called Walter Allen, basically wrote this story down in a, a ham radio um, logbook in 1953 and this eventually was passed on, he read Zechariah Sitchin's book uh, The Stairway to Heaven and explained to Zechariah Sitchin that his great grandfather had actually worked with Vice at the pyramid in 1837 and saw the forgery taking place. Now the problem there is that there's no mention of this guy Humphreys Brewer in any of Vice's three published volumes mm -hmm. which is you know, really curious. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So I, that was one of the things that, that well, you know, I, I wanted to try and find out, well, why would that be the case? Why is that? And it led me basically into investigating um, this whole story, this, this whole, um, you know, fraud allegation initially presented by Sitchin. Um, unfortunately, Zechariah didn't have access to the same resources and technology that, that I have access to today uh, in, ob in order to basically analyse this meticulous, you know, detail, uh, microscopic detail, forensic analysis almost. Um, so Zechariah wasn't able to do basically what I've done in this book and compile a whole dossier of evidence which does point um, I would say fairly conclusively to the fact that these markings found by Howard Weiss in 1837 were basically the result of a, an early Victorian hoax. Wow. I've got to ask you, Scott, straight away. I've been to Egypt. I've seen them. It takes my breath away. I've got a wonderful photograph of me by one of them, which I really love this particular photograph. Uh, what I don't understand is, why did anybody build these things? Did you... Did you find out why they're built and why this shape? And, and, and what do you think about the myths of aliens building it? I mean, what is your stance on this? Well, the thing um, about, I'll take your last point first, um, Peter, the whole alien um, question, for me, that's, that is, well, it's, it's, 
it's separate from this book. I mean, I don't discuss how or why in the Great Pyramid Hopes. I just right. basically, yeah. you know, point out that these these marks were. But were I'm good. asking you those questions because you're so fascinated by pyramids. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, for me, the fact that there's human writing in these hidden chambers suggests that you know humans were involved in them building these pyramids. But the thing is. If these marks are now seen to be fake, well, that becomes an open question again, oh, yeah. you know. Um, so we know as well that um, under some of these blocks, human skeletons have been, the hand of a human was found under one of these giant pyramid blocks. It was obviously one of the people involved in building the pyramid, you know, uh, a human hand, a skeleton was crushed under one of the actual blocks that was found um, a number of, I think in the 1990s it was found. Mm -hmm. You know, so th there's good evidence to suggest that humans um, built them. The why question is a totally different matter. For me, um, the pyramids are categorically not built as tombs. Well, certainly not the first, um, the early giant pyramids, the, the first 16 mm -hmm. pyramids, the giant pyramids of early ancient Egypt simply were not built as tombs. They couldn't have been built as tombs. You know, who builds a tomb? Look at the Great Pyramid, Peter. You've got the entrance to the Great Pyramid. Now, it's it's about um, you know about fifty feet up um, from the the base of the pyramid. Now, the entrance, the original entrance, was a, a a stone that swiveled upwards, and then you could go straight into what's called the descending passage, all the way through down into the what's called the subterranean chamber. You know, so these builders allowed access to the pyramid. Now, if this is, think about this, if this is the tomb of an ancient Egyptian king, why would he even allow access into the pyramid at all? What they normally do, if you look at most other burials, if it's a shaft burial like Khufu's mother, Hetefres, at Giza, they, they placed her body or her remains in a shaft tomb. Basically, they, they dig a tunnel straight down on the, the Giza plateau and dig out a chamber at the bottom of this shaft, this vertical shaft, put everything in the, the, the chamber below, and then they seal this shaft. They basically fill it with cement, well, an ancient type of cement, and then they cover it over with sand, and they don't even mark the grave. That's what Khufu did for his own mother. So it's totally... It beggars belief. That tells us one thing about Khufu. He knew how to secure a burial. You basically put it in the ground, you cover it over, you make sure there's no access to it, you cover it over and you don't mark the grave. And here we have him himself for his own tomb, apparently, building the most monumental structure in history. You know, 481 feet tall, you know, the biggest um, advert to every tomb raider, raider in Egypt. Yes. You know, here's the booty, come and yeah. get it, guys. You just wouldn't do that. Yeah. You just yeah. wouldn't do that. You know, so there's all these questions. There's all this stuff that says, you know, these were not tombs. The other thing as well about the Great Pyramid, Peter, is you find that it, it was designed to be accessed. It was designed to be accessed. You know, there's these... Um, what are called um, the blocking stones, and three of them, are, they're not there now, but they used to be there. And they're in these grooves, and basically these, these were so, supposed to uh, block 
robbers from get, getting into the main burial chamber. The thing is, you could climb over these stones and just prize them away. There's also another stone there, which is actually still there today, called the granite leaf. And that is in grooves as well. It doesn't go all the way down to the ground, which is peculiar. It stops kind of halfway up on the wall, but it can slide up and down, kind of like a guillotine. This could have been used as a counterweight to lift the original blocking stones. You know, so it, they're, that's it leaving the lock and the, the key in the, the, the door and the lock of the door. You know, you just wouldn't do that. You know, so these, these builders are going, going out of their way to make sure that the pyramid can be accessed yeah. easily. It just doesn't make sense. It's Radio City 2 and Radio City Talk. I'm talking to Scott Crichton and the book is called The Great Pyramid Hoax. Scott, the book uh, is fascinating. I've got to ask you one more question before we go back to the book. What is your opinion, you personally, on why the pyramid was built? Well, the ancient Egyptians tell us themselves why they built it. The thing is, Peter, the orthodox Egyptologists simply ignore that particular narrative. They simply ignore it. The, the story that has come down to us via the Arabic chronicle, chronicles excuse me, tell us that the ancient Egyptians saw something occurring in the heavens, okay? The stars and the sun and the moon, they'd all moved out of their normal course across the sky. And this troubled the ancient Egyptians, King Saurid. Now, he, he consulted his astronomer priests and asked, what does this mean, these changes in the heavens? What does this signify? And the astronomer priest told King Saurid that it means in 300 years there will be a great flood which will drown and devastate the entire land. And King, King Saurid said to his people, we are going to build pyramids. And inside these pyramids, we are going to place everything that the kingdom would need to reconstitute, to rebuild itself, to be reborn again after the worst effects of this great flood had passed. And for me, there's a lot more truth in that theory than there is in the tomb theory. And so that's that's basically they basically built them as as a kind of ark, you know, a series of arcs uh, to store tools, to store seeds, to store um, pots, and all sorts of other knowledge, to, you know, yeah. uh, the civilizing knowledge and mathematical knowledge, their, their f knowledge of physics, astronomy, whatever they would have stored um, inside these um, pyramids. Scott, and, yeah. uh, I've just got to say that your fascination for Egypt, do you look at them and wonder ever how many people died building them and how and how did they do it? We know there's all sorts of technical ideas, but how would you think? And I've been, I've seen the size of the stones. It's ridiculous. And thousands must have died building it. It's an interesting, it's one of the most, you know, asked questions about Egyptology. How did this ancient, supposedly primitive or fairly primitive people managed to do this. How on earth could they do it? We could certainly do it today. We could. There's no doubt about it. We have the engineering capability to do it. What we do not have is the money or the political will to do something as monumental as that. It's just way, 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 way too big a project for, for any country to do. Why the ancient Egyptians done it? Well, I've, I've touched on that. I've given 
some ideas about how I think it could have been done. And, you know, uh, in my previous book, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, and the, the lost knowledge of the 16 pyramids. And basically, I, I get to or present evidence which supports the theory of um, thermodynamics. Um, that basically, I think, they could have possibly used not just thermodynamics, but a number of um, different methods. But thermodynamics, uh, basically, you, you have an envelope, a very large envelope, that's you know, big enough um, to contain enough hot air to lift you know, one of these stones. And in fact, I show through calculations that a massive um, balloon-type envelope of 100, say a spherical balloon of, say, 100 feet diameter, that would be that would contain enough hot air to lift the weight of the balloon itself plus two um, of these pyramid blocks. They're roughly about two and a half tonne each. So a balloon of that dimension could lift easily its own weight and five tons. And there's evidence at Giza um, that that may, may as well have been the case and also at the um, temple of um, uh, Dendera, at the uh, temple of Hathor at Dendera. There's evidence there that the ancient Egyptians may have used a simple hot air balloon to raise these really heavy stones. That's just a theory. I mean, I'm not saying it's yeah, right, yeah. but it's just one of you know many theories. And the thing about that theory, it wouldn't require an awful lot of people um, you know, to actually raise the stones. You're not talking about hundreds of people dragging stones up ramps that would be, the ramp itself would be just as big a project in constructing as building the pyramid would. You know, so to me, that's just a non-starter that they used a ramp. It really is just a non-starter. Was it a difficult book to put together? Uh, well, in, in certain ways um, it was because, you know, you're you're having to get, um, you're finding um, this guy's original diary, um, which is in a small um, library in Aylesbury in the north of London. Um, you're, you're having to get, you know, photographs from various, because I've never actually been in these chambers, but others have. So, I'm, you know, I'm having to get, pull all this different evidence from all over the, all, basically all over the world together into this book. And, you know, getting permissions from people to, to use all this material, that takes some doing and some coordinating. And um, so from that that sense, yeah, it, it, was, it was difficult at times. But in terms of actually, you know, finding the, the evidence and, and collating it and analysing it and assessing it, um, th that was actually, you know, fairly straightforward. Are you pleased with the book? Well, it's certainly um, making um, a few small ripples already. <laughs> so um, in, in that respect, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased. I think I've done a, a fair job in presenting the evidence. And, and in presenting also the the character of um, Colonel Weiss and you know who he was as a person and you know going into his motivation and so forth and so on you know so yeah I'm I'm happy with the the overall outcome um, if I'd had a little bit more time in writing this book I would have been able to add in evidence which I've I've found since the book was locked down by the by my publisher. Um, I found even more evidence, so maybe there's there's some scope there for a sequel. I'm not sure yet. Has this pointed you in a different direction within your career? 
Are you going to be an author now? Well, I mean, this is this is my fourth book, um, Peter. So it's it's a subject that obviously I'm fascinated mm -hmm. and very passionate about. Mm -hmm. You know, this for me, um, this when I started finding the evidence of this hoax that this hoax, this fraud had been perpetrated. I actually found myself becoming quite angry. Um, by really? It because, you know, it's, it's essentially served to derail, you know, the research into the Great Pyramid for the best part of 200 years. You know, and finding this evidence, you know, I, I, you know <laughs> I was getting angrier and angrier. How can these Egyptologists continue to insist that these marks are genuine? You know, remember, Peter, these marks... The, Egyptologists, this is their holy grail of evidence that the Great Pyramid, A, belonged to Khufu, and thus because it belonged to Khufu, ergo it is only four and a half thousand years old. This is, the, this is the strongest evidence, and this book blows that right out of the water. So, yeah, I'm very pleased with, with, with that aspect of it. Um, I'm just waiting, obviously, now for the, for the backlash, the inevitable backlash. <laughs> The book is called The Great Pyramid Hoax. Before we go, Scott, give us a flavour of your other books. Well, the, the, the first book um, is called The Giza Prophecy, which basically shows that uh, the great pyramids in Egypt, the first 16 pyramids, are much, much older um, than conventional um, wisdom would, would tell us. The second book, uh, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, talks about the, the pyramid as an arc and shows all the evidence to support that this alternative narrative that the Great Pyramids were not built as tombs, but rather they were built to save, not the king, but rather the kingdom. They were built to give the rebirth to a kingdom, not the rebirth to a king. So that's what the second book um, does. And obviously the great, uh, there's a, a, another book, um, um, the uh, Giza Oracle, um, which is one of my sort of earlier books, and um, when I was just basically, um, you know, working around the edges of these ideas. But the other three books basically expand them much yep. more. Obviously, the latest one is the the Great Pyramid Hoax, which basically, you know, takes these marks that were allegedly found by Vice and shows that they were a Victorian fraud. Scott, what do you reckon the Egyptians will make of this book? Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting question, Peter. I I I really don't know because in some ways, um, this you know they may look upon this book as damaging um, the their heritage, their history, um, you know, and you know opening up, opening up the question again and causing questions about you know where the tombs were they not, but in the other sense, I would hope that you know many of them would look and say, well, look, this this. This is the truth, you know, and but the other thing it does is it, it brings the mystery back to the pyramids. You know, this by removing this evidence of um, Khufu's hand in the pyramid, we're now at a situation where, well, did Khufu really build this? Was it someone else? But, you know, when we put this evidence aside, we can ask those questions again. So the mystery comes back and people like mystery, you know, so I think that, in a sense, is is just as just as attractive, in a way. How can people find out more about you? 
Well, um, you can go on to, uh, well, you can find more about me through my uh, publisher, that's uh, Inner Traditions uh, Bear and Company. Um, there's the website, innertraditions.com. But I've also got my own alternative Egyptology forum on abovetopsecret.com. If you just go to the forum page, you'll find my name down there alongside the author, Jim Mars, and you can just go in there. Yep. You know, do a wee thread and I'll pop along and answer your questions. Scott, the last question. What do you want my listeners and people listening online all around the world, what do you want them to take when they've put this book down from the book? Well, I would hope that um, most people would be objective and open-minded and fair-minded and assess the evidence that I present in this book and come to the same conclusion that I have come to myself, that these marks are Victorian fakes, and that we now have to go back to basics and reassess our knowledge of you know, who built these pyramids, when and why. Scott Crichton, the book is called The Great Pyramid Hoax. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure.